right, we won't listen to that again. All right, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. Matthew chapter 7, good to see you. This is week 4 of our summer sermon series called Actually the Bible Doesn't Say That. Each Sunday we've been examining different mythical sayings and ideas and thoughts that are predominant in culture that can even creep at times into the church. If we're not careful, even parts of it can creep into our own lives and minds. That people assume come from God's Word, but that the Bible actually never says. And so we've been walking through these each week. Appreciate Ben last week doing a great job uh, preaching on the kind of the mantra of culture. You only live once. That is a terrible piece of advice to live life by. And did a great job of going to God's Word to show us just that. By the way, I'm thankful that God has in our church capable, godly men who can step in and bring God's Word, whether that's Ben or Brandon or Barry, three B's right there, all right? Uh, but other men who step in and preach God's Word, what a blessing that is. And so this morning we're going to look at another uh, idea in culture. It's actually something that the Bible does say, but it doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means in culture. I'm sure you've heard somebody say to somebody else, uh, you know, maybe you've heard somebody say to somebody, hey, uh, that they think something's wrong with a certain situation or uh, something in culture, or uh, you'll hear someone say to somebody else, hey, I think what you're doing is wrong, right? I think this is right, and I think this is wrong. And often you'll hear in response to that, the other person say, hey, don't judge me. Hey, you're not supposed to be judging me. And especially if they're saying it back to a Christian, they'll say something like, hey, didn't Jesus say, judge not, that you not be judged? It's actually a verse that many think has surpassed John 3.16 as the most familiar and most widely memorized Bible verse in the world. Judge not. It comes from right here, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. But is the way that it's often viewed and used in culture correct? Is that the right way to view that verse? So I have a membership at Planet Fitness only because it's cheap. All right? Maybe you have a gym membership somewhere else that's better. Uh, but I go to Planet Fitness because it's cheap. But it can be a very, very strange planet if you've been there before. It's the only gym that I know of that has a long-standing tradition. It kind of got thrown off a little bit with the pandemic. Uh, but a long-standing tradition of having a giant bowl of Tootsie Rolls in the middle of the gym that you can enjoy while you're working out. They also have one night of the week where they serve free pizza. All right? So you can enjoy a big... A greasy slice of pepperoni pizza between your sets if you want to at Planet Fitness. And here's what they're saying. Hey, here at Planet Fitness, you want to enjoy a piece of pizza while you're doing bench press? We're not going to judge you. You do you, right? They even have it plastered all over the, stamped all over the walls. Things like no critics or judgment-free zone. And based on mainly one verse in the Bible, a lot of people outside the church and even sometimes people inside the church think that the church is supposed to be a lot like Planet Fitness. But is it accurate to say that this is supposed to be a judgment-free zone? We're going to allow God's Word to answer that for us this morning. Matthew chapter 7, Take a, a stand up, take your Bible, uh, read with me beginning in verse 1. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn 
to attack you. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, we are thankful that in a world that is ever-changing, that is broken, that we serve you, a God who never changes. Thank you for giving us your word that never changes, that is everlasting, that is complete, that is sufficient, that is without error. And Father, I pray that as we study it, as we examine our lives by it today, and we seek to apply it, that you would help us to obey it and walk in the truth of it. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would press this truth into our hearts and that you would shape us this morning into the kind of kingdom disciples that you have called us to be. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's tackle this text in two parts this morning. First, we're going to look at culture's distorted and twisted meaning of the command, judge not. And then we're going to look at Christ's true meaning of the command, judge not. Let's start with culture's twisted meaning of judge not. We live in a very relativistic, pluralistic society. Uh, We live in a world where morality is relative. And what that means is that we live in a world that puts religion and puts spirituality and puts morality in a category of personal preference. All right, we all we can't escape having personal preferences. We all have personal preferences, things that we like, things that we don't like, things that we think are bad, things that we think are good, things that we think are right, things that we think are wrong. All right? If I were to ask, is it right to be a Gator fan or a Bulldog fan this morning? There you go. We, I like that. We would have some different opinions. In my book, that's right. Right? Some of you may disagree. Some of you may have some strong feelings against that statement. Is McDonald's the best fast food restaurant? Or is Chick-fil-A the best restaurant? All the right thinking, sanctified people are going to say Chick-fil-A. At least that's what I think's right in my book. Dunkin' Donuts or Starbucks? I'm going to say Dunkin' Donuts. IHOP or Waffle House? Y'all know. Lowe's or Home Depot? Ace Hardware. Krispy Kreme or Donut Shop, right? I passionately stand firm that the right answer is the latter, all right? Donut Shop. That's what's right in my book. But if you don't agree with me on that, I'm not going to like seriously sit you down after the service today and say, listen, we need to talk. I'm concerned about something in your life, right? You are walking down a dangerous path with your donut choices. And here are 10 strong arguments to help you understand why you're wrong to think that some other donut shop is better than the donut or some other yeah, some other donut shop is better than the donut shop. Here's some reasons why you're wrong, why I'm right, and why you need to turn back to the life to the light and make some better choices when it comes to what donuts that you eat. You would react to that inappropriate appropriately so, like back off. Like who are you to get up in my business and tell me that the kind of donuts that I'm eating it's, a, it's like seriously a wrong thing. All right? Here's what culture does. Culture puts morality, views of morality, religious views into the same category of those personal preferences. Hey, I got... People will say, hey, I got my view of spirituality. I got my view of morality. I have that way that I, that, that I see things through, the spiritual lens that I see life through, that I embrace, and it's kind of what gives me a perceived feeling of peace and joy and happiness. And nobody's got the right to step in and to tell me that that's wrong, especially you Christians, to seriously call me out about the way that I'm thinking, to tell me that I'm wrong, to tell me the way that I'm thinking or behaving or believing is wrong. And, and the common comeback that you'll hear from a world when they feel pressed like that, is back off. Hey, didn't Jesus say not to judge? And they'll quote that verse right there. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not. And what people mean right there is, hey, you Christians need to be more like the one that you say you follow. 
You stop going around this world, stop making judgment calls about what's right and wrong, like Jesus told you to do and like Jesus did himself. But is that what Jesus actually means when he says, judge not, that you not be judged? Is that really the way that Jesus lived his life? You don't even have to move outside of this passage to get an answer to that question. In verse 5, Jesus calls people hypocrites. In verse 6, Jesus is calling people dogs and pigs. It sounds like a little bit of judging is going on right there. That doesn't sound like Jesus is modeling for us. Hey, you do you. Hey, who am I to judge? Hey, you do what you want to do. Matthew 7, 1 cannot mean that we're never supposed to make judgment calls, that we're never supposed to vocalize what we believe is true and false, or that you're never supposed to tell someone that what they're doing is wrong. You say, well, why? Because Jesus spent his entire ministry doing that. Listen to Jesus in Matthew 23, talking to a group of people. He says, this is Jesus. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell. Wait, sweet, gentle Jesus said that? Jesus is an amazing, loving, compassionate king. But make no mistake, read the New Testament, read the Sermon on the Mount. He drops some atomic absolute truth bombs on people at times. Why? Because he loves truth. And because he loves people. And he wants people to know what is true and what is right and to understand the danger of holding to it, leaving this world, holding to a view of love spirituality that's wrong. Jesus' whole ministry life is characterized by him getting up into people's business and making judgment calls about what's right and what's wrong. Jesus did not come into this world to usher in a judgment-free zone kind of kingdom. By the way, the idea of a judgment-free zone is a myth anyway. You know that, right? We all make judgment calls. And some of you, maybe you're here. Maybe you're new to church. Maybe you feel something in you kind of pushing back on what I'm saying right now. Maybe your response to that is like, don't tell me I judge. I kind of live by the mantra of plan of fitness. No judgment zone. Don't tell me that I don't. I, I judge. It's you Christians who judge. Maybe you're in that position. I don't judge. It's you Christians who judge. And so I, I come back to you and I'd ask, wait a second. You think it's wrong that Christians should make judgment calls about what's right and wrong? You say, yeah. Wait, so you think it's wrong for me to say things, and I'll hit some of the hot topics. You think it's wrong for me to say that sexually immoral behavior and abortion or homosexuality or the freedom to choose whatever gender you want to be, to say that those things are right or wrong, to say that those things are wrong and sinful, you think that Christians shouldn't do that? Yeah, you shouldn't judge like that. It's wrong. Well, what did you just do right there? It sure sounds like you're judging me by telling me that I shouldn't judge you. You're making a judgment call. When you dig down to the bottom of it, people in the world really don't have a problem with judging. Everybody makes judgment calls. You arrived here this morning because you live in a world that's not a judgment-free zone. You did not want to drive through all the intersections you drove through this morning on the way here that were judgment-free zones. You wouldn't have made it. We don't have a problem with judging. Here's the problem people have. Let's just call it what it is. Let's just point out what it is. People don't have a problem with judging, they have a, What they have a problem with is their life and their soul being judged by a holy, fixed, moral standard. Right. Namely, the standard of God's Word. Right. Because that interrupts and it offends their fluid view of morality. 
that you just kind of allow your heart and kind of culture to dictate what you're going to decide, what is right or wrong for your life. And the defense that people use to try to silence Christians, to silence Christians who would say there's absolute truth and there's a right and there's a wrong and would stand in those positions is the world will take Jesus' words right here and will say, back off. Jesus didn't judge and neither should you. When ironically, if you look at the rest of the passage in Jesus' life, he actually leads the way in judging the world and communicating a moral order. And he spends the rest of his life, all of his life, making judgment calls about what is right and wrong. Jesus here is not saying in Matthew 7 that we should never judge. That we should never call sinful deeds what they are. And that believers shouldn't stand for what is good and what is right and what is true in this world. See, that's a twisted misapplication of this text. And judge not that you may not be judged also doesn't mean that you can't confront sin in the life of a fellow believer. Sometimes this verse is also used as a defense mechanism in the church. Like, hey, don't judge me. Other Christians can maybe sometimes think, wait, hey, wait, it's none of my business to get anybody else's business. So sometimes this can creep into our minds in the church. No, actually, in Scripture and in the New Testament, we're actually commanded to get in each other's business. Jesus said in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances, judge with right judgment. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, and the church in Corinth had some issues, all right? They had some problems. And there was a certain issue that was going on in the church in Corinth that he's addressing in chapter 5 where there was this one member who was practicing really perverse sexual immorality. Namely, his girlfriend was a stepmom. It was really bad. It was really perverse. And they were, it was kind of a joke in the church. And they actually prided themselves on how tolerant and inclusive they were. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, Hey, you need to make a judgment call. You don't need to tolerate sin. You need to call it out. And he literally says in chapter 5, purge the evil person from, a, from among you. In other words, y'all judge each other. Matthew 7.1 is not a command to not judge or call out sin. This is not Jesus making a blanket statement to never judge. You say, well, then what is it? It's Jesus qualifying a kind of judgment that is sinful, that is wrong, and is sadly all too common at times in the church. Section 2, let's look at Christ's true meaning of judge not. That's what judge not doesn't mean. What does it mean? Well, again, we have a responsibility, we've established this, as Christians to judge one another. But there's a, it's a certain kind of judgment. All right, the Greek word for judge is krino. It's where we get the English word critic. It means to criticize. It means to evaluate, to analyze. Now, it can also mean to condemn and to avenge. That's not the kind of judgment we're called to shell out. That's God. God judges in that seat. We're called, and what this passage is leading us to understand, primarily in the context of our faith-family relationships, to judge one another in the sense that we assess and we analyze and pay attention to each other's lives. It's actually a way that we love each other. Did you know that? We understand that we're called to love each other in our faith family by serving one another, by helping one another, by encouraging one another, by edifying one another. But we also love our fellow believers not by condemning each other, but by confronting one another. When we dangerously wander off into sin. We're called to judge in that way. But it's a responsibility, Jesus is making sure we understand, that we approach with much caution. 
because we can easily in our flesh slide into a sinful place of judging people hypocritically. And this is the part of the message where the Holy Spirit's kind of finger of conviction goes, boom. Because it's been easy up to this point to kind of stand behind the Holy Spirit as God's Word is saying to the world, hey, don't misapply this text. This don't mean we can't call out what's right and wrong. Amen. You get them, Holy Spirit. And now all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's going, hold on a second. Now make sure that when you do step forward and seek to obey this passage and judge, that you're doing it the right way. Because often it's not done the right way. So what is Jesus trying to communicate to us in this text? Number one, Jesus is warning us to not judge others hypocritically. This is not a blanket warning against any form of judging people. It's a warning, here it is, against judgmentalism. Against the judgmental spirit. It's a warning against taking God's clear command in the New Testament and Scripture for us to look out for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's perverting that. And it's becoming some kind of moral police and running around and nitpicking sins and looking down our nose at people, being harshly critical, condemning, being censorious of others, judging people according to personal preferences or physical appearances, assuming the worst of people. It's slandering others with judgmental words. Jesus is warning us to avoid... A harsh judgmental spirit. Jesus is warning us to not ride around on a high horse with no humility or grace, like we're some kind of moral police with all of our stuff together, just chomping at the bit to write somebody a ticket and call them out in their sin. And as a Christian, what Jesus is saying in this text is that's actually a really absurd thing to do as a disciple of Jesus Christ. He illustrates the absurdity of it really well in verse 3, doesn't he? He says, Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And so Jesus is purposely being like painting a ridiculous but funny picture right here. Right? Jesus is saying, Don't be like the guy who's running around like saying, Hey, bro, you got a speck in, you got a speck of sawdust in your eye when you got a giant beam hanging out of your eye. Like, come here, man, let me help you out with your speck of dust when you're like hitting the guy in the head with a big plank hanging out of your eye. It's a ridiculous picture. This is a guy that lectures his friend on, I'm afraid it's going to fall, lectures his friend on how he needs to treat his wife, and yet at home, in secret, he's looking at things daily on his phone he shouldn't look at. This is a guy who lectures his Bible Connect group about how everybody needs to tithe when he's not stewarding his financial responsibility at home well. or He's cheating on his taxes. This is someone who's running their mouth. Hey, can you believe she wore that? Can you believe he went there? Can you believe they bought that? While you can't even see, you got a giant beam of self-righteousness and pride and slander and gossip impaled into the side of your head. Jesus says, you hypocrite. And the point of this picture is to show us how absurd it is to be that way as a Christian. You know, the, uh, there's a game called Would You Rather that, I, that we used to play a whole lot. I don't know if people played as much it, in student ministry. It was a way kind of you pass the time on road trips. Right? You, and it's a, a dumb game. You just lay out these absurd scenarios. Would you rather do this or would you rather do that? And you like force everyone to imagine that they've got to choose. Like it's, it's a life or death moment. You've got to choose between these two things. I played it for so long, I still remember a lot of them. Would you rather, and it's funny to hear teenagers' response to this, find true love or a million dollars? 
Would you rather swim across an Olympic-sized pool with a great white shark in it or three Nile crocodiles? Here, and, the, and it used to get kind of weird and it really would disturb you as you're thinking about if I had to choose, which one would I choose? Right? Would you rather, for the rest of your life, have needles as leg hair or have flames fly out of your nostrils every time you say the word the? Or my favorite was, would you rather go 10 rounds with Mike Tyson in his prime or talk like him the rest of your life? And you sit there and you go and you're stressing out. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. For the rest of my life, I don't know. Finally, there's somebody rational in the group going, this is absurd. Why are we stressing out? This, this is not a real situation. This is a complete preposterous scenario that we're laying before ourselves. And Jesus is after that same reaction with this absurd picture of a person with a beam hanging out of their head, hanging out of their eye, running around going, hey, come here, let me, let me get the speck of sawdust out of your, out of your eye. Why, you need to go to the emergency room. you got a bigger problem you need to focus on that you need to primarily take consideration of and take care of. It's, it's a preposterous picture, and Jesus is like, so is hypocritical judgment. It's preposterous. For us to see the faults of other people when we haven't spent time dealing with our own sin. When we haven't spent time dealing with our own failure and pride in the issues in our life. Jesus is warning us, be very careful. If you're more concerned with the sins of others than your own, it is a type of spiritual sickness called hypocrisy. And it is a dangerous game to play. And here's the big reason why. Look at verse 2. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Meaning this. There is a judgment day coming for all of us. Every person will stand one day before the judge. And the judgment you use, this verse is saying, will be used on you. The measure you use will be measured to you. And this is what this means. In other words, the consistently graceless person in this life, if you're consistent, consistently merciless and loveless and quick to condemn and hypercritical, those who spend their life more concerned with the sins of others than their own, they may find themselves on that day finding no grace. Finding no mercy on Judgment Day. Why? Because those who tend to never extend grace and mercy in this life tend to have never experienced it in the first place. Right. Hypocrisy and judgmentalism is a dangerous game to play because it could mean you're not saved. And if you are saved, but you slide into that kind of pharisaical mindset, you slide into hypocrisy, it's also a dangerous game. And a dangerous place to be because you're doing nothing to help those people who's got the specks in their eyes. You're doing nothing to actually help them, to help point them to the one who can heal and help them. And Jesus says, stop it. That's, that's the tone of this text. Stop it. Cut it out. Put the hypocrisy and the judgmentalism to death in your life. Well, how do I do that? By dealing humbly with your own sin. Which brings us to point two. What is Jesus doing in this passage? He's warning us against hypocritical judgment. Number two, he's refocusing, refocusing us on our responsibility to judge others lovingly. And we can only do that when we're daily dealing with our sin. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly and take the speck out of your brother's eye. We don't focus on that part of the verse. Culture doesn't focus on that part of the verse. In other words, Jesus doesn't want you to leave the speck in your brother's eye. 
That's not the point. The application of this passage isn't to stop judging and to stay out of people's business. No, Jesus cares about all the specks in our eyes and cares about the specks in our brother's eyes. And he hates sin and he loves people and he knows sin destroys. And he wants to use us to help point things out in each other's lives. Hey, but it's not that he just wants us to be bold and courageous about those things. He also wants to make sure that we are dealing with those things, not just truthfully and courageously and boldly, but in helpful, humble, gentle ways that help point them to Jesus. And we can only do that. This type of loving, like loving people by judging them lovingly in a way that's redemptive, can only happen when we spend time taking the logs out of our eyes. In other words, as one commentator put it this week, and I really like the way he said this, we got to be really good at being lumberjacks before we go around being surgeons. we got to get really good at being lumberjacks in our life and taking care of the beams of sin in our life, but we try to go around trying to help everybody and be surgeons. We have to deal with this stuff in our lives so that we can be the healing, redemptive body of Christ that God's called us to be. Which means this this morning, the path of judging lovingly involves the personal practice of repentance. Of removing the two by fours of sin in my life regularly. We have to, here it is, make sure that our own sinfulness is the primary concern of my life every day of my life. And practice repentance. That's how I maintain fellowship with my Heavenly Father. And it's how I engage people in the way that God's called me to engage them who are in my life. When I'm repenting of my sin, when I'm dealing with the beams of sin in my life, it swings me back out into my relationships. I see things more clearly. It's not that I'm any less concerned about the specks and the sin in my brother's eye. I'm not any less concerned about how serious that sin is, but I'm way less harsh about it. I'm way less judgmental about it and cold about it. Here's why. When I'm genuinely dealing with my own sin regularly, you know what it does? It reminds me that I'm a jacked up, messed up sinner saved by grace myself. And I'm not talking to anybody who's dealing with a sin that's foreign to me and that my heart couldn't easily get me into myself. When I'm dealing humbly with my sin, I know... The most difficult person I'm trying to help at any given time is in no more need of salvation and God's grace than I am. The person who is in the most broken and messiest place imaginable, I know if I'm repenting and if I'm staying close to the cross and if I'm understanding who I am in the sight of God, I understand but for the grace of God go I. John Owen says the seed of every sin is in every heart. And I'm in tune with that as I walk in daily repentance. And we daily, humble, humbly deal with sin in our life. It helps us remember this, that we're talking to fellow sinners. And it also helps just our hearts stay tethered to gospel truths that will keep swinging me back out into relationships, engaging people lovingly, engaging people with grace, not a judgmental spirit. I'm telling you, When I start my day not thinking about everybody else's problems, 
When I start my day not focused on all the other problems in people's life, in my family, or in my friend circles, or in my life, when I start my day not focused on all the other issues that need to be fixed in their lives, but I, my primary focus is me being in the Word, me being in the presence of God, me remembering what He did for me, remembering what I deserved, standing before Him as the great holy judgment. I was guilty. I was condemned. I deserved judgment. But how on the cross Jesus took the condemnation that I deserved, how the judgment fell on the guiltless one so that a guilty sinner like me can go free when i start my day remembering the beauty of the gospel and then in that moment i start dealing with my own sin again and i lay before god i lay myself bare before him again all the sinful warts and the messiness and all of those reasons today he should reject me and yet again he gives me mercy again he gives me grace and reminds me in that moment as i spend time with him and draw close to him and deal with my sin that he's clothed me in the righteousness of jesus christ when i start my day there man i walk out in into the world a humble person. I walk out in the world a blessed man who has a heavenly father who, yes, gives me truth, but gives me grace and mercy and love and compassion. And therefore, I got to go shell those things out into all my other relationships. Not that I'm any less concerned about what is right and wrong. Not that I'm any less concerned about the sin in my brother or sister's life. But I'm far more gracious and merciful and gentle about it. Here it is. This paints a, this creates a beautiful scene in a faith family. What happens when we are all primarily focused on our sinfulness and our, our sin and getting the logs out of our eyes, the beams out of our eyes... What it does is it creates a gospel culture in a church to where we're not talking down to people from a place of pride up here on our high horse. I'm down here with them. They're down here with me. Nobody's talking to somebody down from from up on their high horse. We're all down here together, arms around each other, and I'm next to you, and we're looking up to God together. All under His judgment. All seeking His mercy together. With a heart that wants to help each other. Not seeking to condemn each other. But seeking to confront one another. Arms around each other. Looking up to God together. Saying, God, all of us need your mercy. Hey, brother, and I'm here to help you. I'm no better than you. That's what a faith family being shaped by the gospel looks like. Well, number three this morning. Is Jesus in this text is also. and It's a little bit of a shift here. Number three. He's exhorting us to use discernment. This brings us to verse number 6. It's a strange verse. It took a while to unpack this text this week. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. What does that mean? A lot of different interpretations out there even within the evangelical world. What does it mean? Um, a writer named Dorothy Parker who uh, is known for her wit Later in life, at an older age, she wrote about how she walked up to the door at a social event and a younger, uh, more attractive lady jumped in front of her and swung open the door. And this younger lady said to Dorothy Parker, something you should never say to someone who's older, but she swung the door open and she said, age before beauty. And without missing a beat, uh, Dorothy Parker walked through the door and said, pearls before swine. That's obviously a misapplication of the text. But it's pretty quick and it's pretty clever. But what does it mean? 
What's the point Jesus is making in verse 6? Well, up to this point, Jesus' focus has been on relationships in the church. Right now, he's going to tell us and help us to understand how we engage people outside. How we engage outsiders with the gospel. Because it's true this morning. You have people in your life who you love, who are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who are doing things destructive, and you're called to help them and encourage them as they're wandering in sin to come back to Jesus. But there's also some people in your life who don't know Christ, who you also love. And there's nothing more you want for them than for them to come to Christ. For them to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. And we are called to speak truth to them. We're called to be courageous and to boldly stand for what's right and what's wrong and articulate what's true. Most importantly, articulate the gospel to them. But Jesus is instructing us here. And think about those relationships you have with people who are lost. He's instructing us to make sure we use discernment as we do that. Now, how does this verse help us do that? You're like, I don't see it. I just see him calling, talking about dogs and pigs and pearls. What does that have to do with using discernment? Well, there are different kinds of life forms on this earth. All of us understand that. And the more complex the life form, the more that life form is able to perceive things differently, the the, the more that life form is able and has the capacity to understand the value of things. Right? So some of you are dog people. You just think about your dog. I got two dogs. love my dogs. Olive and Penelope are their names. My wife named them. And And I like them. But their ability to understand and to value things isn't that great. Like what gets them really excited, what gets them so excited that they kind of dance on two legs and drool is a cheap dog treat. A dog treat that will snap them out of like a deep slumber if they hear the bag rattle and will sprint across the house. In their world, that's really valuable to them. But if I put a a million dollar pearl before Olive, my dog, you know what it's going to do? It's going to look at the pearl for a split second, maybe sniff it, and look at me and go, where's my begging strip? Not interested in the pearl. A pearl has great value. I can do my best to try to convince my dog, hey, this pearl can buy you a bazillion begging strips. It's not going to understand what I'm talking about. It doesn't have the ability to perceive the value of that treasure. Now, I as a human being, I have knowledge that that dog doesn't have. I have a mind that has a capacity to understand the great value of that pearl. And I'm going to take it any day over the dog tree. Here's the point that Jesus is making right here. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus compares His kingdom, the message of His kingdom, the Gospel, to a pearl. But what he's saying is there's some people who don't have the capacity to recognize its value. There's some people, the Bible calls lost, dead in their sin, apart from Christ, never have trusted in Christ, who don't have the capacity to recognize the value of the treasure of the gospel. Even when it's right there in front of them. That's why as you put the pearl of the gospel before them, they don't receive it. They don't see it as beautiful. They don't see it as eternally valuable. And they'll only see it as eternally valuable if something from the outside changes their mind. Namely, the power of God. They'll only see that pearl of the gospel as beautiful and valuable if God supernaturally gives them the capacity to understand it and to see it. Now, what does that 
practically mean for us? There are going to be times where you're trying to reach someone with the gospel and you're going to try to reach them with the gospel and they're going to resist. They're going to refuse. You're going to try to reach them with the gospel and they're going to resist and they're going to refuse. And I believe the way we apply verse 6 is instead of just trying to relentlessly all the time shove gospel pearls down their throats that they keep spitting back up at us trying to force feed them the gospel, sometimes we do have to step back and focus on living the gospel in front of them and take up our main weapon, which is prayer. And pray that God would do what only He can do. That God would give them the new eyes that they need and the new heart that they need and the new nature that they need to see Jesus in the gospel as the treasure that it is. I don't think it's an accident that the very next section in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 is on prayer. Ian Bounds said it this way, we should never try to talk to a person about God without also talking to God about that person. There will be times when you're trying to reach someone with the gospel. And Jesus says, in those moments when you are getting nothing but resistance, and even hostile resistance, there's times to step back, live out the gospel, and lift that soul up in prayer. Matthew 7 is not a passage about how Christians should not judge. It's not a passage about how Christians should not speak up about what's right and what's wrong. It's teaching us to not judge in a sinful, hypocritical way. It's teaching us to judge lovingly. It's teaching us to be discerning in the way that we engage people on the outside of the faith. The question is, how do you need to apply this to your own personal life this morning? Maybe for some of us, you're here, you're a Christian, but you've been kind of a silent Christian. Maybe you've been silent when it comes to sharing your faith, or for whatever reason, you've not sought. You've kind of taken that cultural, kind of twisted misunderstanding of Jesus' words here at the beginning of Matthew chapter 7, and for whatever reason, you, you're not seeking to judge people lovingly. You, you, like, I don't want to get in people's business. It's not my place. And you need to realize what this text is teaching us today, that there are times where it is part of our duty as a disciple of Christ to take up our part in the body of Christ and to walk alongside our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to help them when they wander into sin, come back to Christ. Some of us this morning, you haven't been silent. And this message, in a way, has almost given you a renewed urge to confront someone in your life, who you love, about sin in their life. And if that's you, here's my encouragement to you. Spend time this morning getting logs out of your eyes. Spend time this morning making the primary focus of your life your own sin. Get the two-by-fours of sin out of your own heart and out of your life. Get close to the cross. Remember what Jesus has done for you. Rejoice in the mercy and the grace and the love that He's shown you. And then swing back out into those relationships. It won't mean you're any less serious about the sin in their life. But it will mean you're far more full of the grace of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus and the gentleness of Jesus as you engage them about it. Hey, here... Maybe you've been confronted by a fellow believer. Lovingly confronted by someone close to you who has shared a concern about your life. How have you responded to that? How have you responded to that? Can you imagine if somebody goes into a doctor's office? They've had tests run. 
by a team of doctors they trust. After some time that's passed, they're called in for an appointment. The doctor comes in. A doctor whose job is to tell you what's right and what's wrong with you and your health. What needs to change. What's not aligning with what a healthy body should look like. And the doctor comes in and says, listen, we've got a problem. There's, you have a medical condition that is, is going to give you three months to live if you don't do something to change it. If you don't listen to what I'm telling you, and if we don't do something now, if we don't act, you're going to die. Can you imagine somebody hearing that and going, I don't know about that, Doc. Who are you to judge me? I, don't, I think that's maybe just your opinion. I think that's kind of an overreaction. I actually think, in my mind, that i got 65 more years to live. You would say, that'd be really dumb. And that would be really foolish. And so it is with someone who has someone who's come lovingly aside, beside you and pointed out a concern in your life that aligns with Scripture. And for whatever reason, you've pushed that away. In humility this morning, Maybe the Holy Spirit is leading you to respond in this way, to receive that and to repent of that sin and actually praise God and thank God that he's given you the gift of the body of Christ that comes alongside of us in redemptive ways and loves us and cares for us so much that when we wander into sin, will call us back to the fold and to Christ. Maybe some of you this morning, somebody's on your heart who is lost. I mean, when I said that you thought of someone or you thought of a few people, who don't know Christ. And for some of us, we need to be more intentional about sharing the gospel. That's what you need to take away from today. For some of us, I mean, you've been throwing gospel pearls in front of them over and over, maybe for years, with nothing but resistance. I don't think this, don't hear me wrong, this passage isn't telling us to dismiss those people who resist or that, that you're not going to keep putting those gospel pearls in front of them. What this passage is reminding us of is there are times we got to step back and recognize that they need a new nature to receive the gospel. And there are times to recognize that and to pray that the Holy Spirit will do only what He can do in their life and to pray with faith and hope that He'll do it. Never lose hope! Is it your mom, dad, husband, wife, brother, sister, cousin, friend, neighbor, co-worker? That person who is lost, you're on the verge of losing hope. Don't lose hope. Here's what can encourage you. Remember, we were all dogs. We were all swines before God miraculously got a hold of us. We all rejected the truth of God's word. We all rejected the treasure of the gospel. But God found a way to break through. And He found you. And He saved you. And He raised you to new life. And that moment He raised you to new life, do you know this? Was an answer to somebody's prayer about your salvation. Who didn't lose hope. So keep praying. Keep boldly living the gospel out loud. Keep looking for opportunities to intentionally, truthfully, lovingly lay gospel truth and gospel pearls before those who God has put around us. And trust God. Finally, there are some here who were lost this morning. And I want to give you an opportunity to leave today saved. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to know this. According to God's word, there is a day of ultimate eternal judgment coming. 
on that day, those who are not in Christ, who never in this life bow their knee to Christ as Lord and Savior, according to God's word, God will not show mercy. He is holy. He is just. He must deal with sin in this world and in people's lives. But here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus, the Son of Man, came into the world the first time not to condemn and judge the world, John 3, 17, but to save it. To forgive sinners as He on the cross takes the place of sinners and receives the judgment of God for our sins. And those who repent of their sins, trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior, believe that He rose from the dead. For those who trust in Him, Your sins get to be judged in Jesus, not in you. And your sins are forgiven forever and you go free. Has that happened in your life? I pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate your heart, would open your eyes, would give you spiritual eyes, spiritual ears to hear, would draw you to Himself. And that this morning, for the first time ever, you'd see the gospel as beautiful. You'd see Jesus on that cross in your place as beautiful. It's the only way, yes, to be saved. I know it's a very narrow view, but it's the way God gave us to be saved. It's amazing grace. It's amazing love. It's beautiful. Is God giving you sight to see that? Do you see your sin? Do you see you're deserving of the judgment of God, but Jesus is there taking it for you? Will you receive what He's done for you to save you from your sin, I pray you would so that when Jesus comes a second time as judge, you'll be able to stand with Him. And that your sins won't be judged in you for eternity. That's the way the Holy Spirit's dealing with your heart. I'll be down front. would love to pray with you today. would love to help you understand what it means to receive the gospel. For the rest of us, I'll trust that the Holy Spirit's showing you how you need to respond. I'm going to pray. We're going to stand. We're going to sing. I make this the front of this room an old-fashioned altar where you can come and you can do business with God, as it's been said. If you need to come and pray, you do that. If you need to come and pray for somebody who's lost in your life, don't give up hope. Come do that. I'll be down front. If you need somebody to pray with you, I'll be happy to do that with you. Father, pray you'd move through this place. I pray we'd respond in a way that honors you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's respond.